Uh, this morning, I want to turn our attention uh, towards another series, or new series, and a series that's going to take us uh, really, I guess you should say for the next 10 weeks, it's really only nine weeks, but in the middle of that, we're going to take a break on Mother's Day uh, to then uh, talk about raising our children in the admonition of the Lord on that day, on, on May 8th. Uh, but outside of that, over the next nine weeks, then not including that week, we're going to be looking at this a series entitled The Kingdom of God. So before we begin to talk about what that's going to be all about, I want you to consider a couple questions. Really, one main question, but think, what is it that you desire more than anything else? Continue to think about that. Because for many of you, even as I think about that, yeah, maybe something jumps in your mind. And of course, because we're sitting in church, you know, we hope, you know, for good Christians that the first thing that came to mind was what, uh, what we know should be the answer. Jesus, right? That's a, that's a good answer. But, but that's not always the truth. If we're honest, you know, that's not necessarily the thing that we desire with our lives more than anything else. Maybe with our lips at the right times. So what? What is it that occupies the majority of your thoughts in time? So throughout the, the course of your day, throughout the course of a week or a month or a year, what in your life occupies the, the major portion of your thoughts and the consumption of your physical time abilities? What occupies the most of that? And then we could add to that a question, what in your life reveals your greatest passion. So what do you think about your life reveals to those who are looking in what you are most passionate about, really without ever opening your mouth? What would that say? So I, I want you to consider uh, your answers uh, to those questions as we consider over these several weeks this topic, the kingdom of God. Now, this is a phrase that uh, you know, like many others that we use in church, is very common. In fact, you, you'll read it several times throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of, uh, of Matthew uh, and other places. Uh, you're probably very familiar with that phrase, the kingdom of God. I've even heard it prayed, that, that phrase, the kingdom prayed already a couple times in different places this morning. So something that we're familiar with, but do we really understand what that means when we speak that phrase, the kingdom of God, Or is it just one of those things that we've always heard, we've read, and we just kind of read over, and, and, and maybe we understand a, in a very broad way it's talking about something, you know, good and godly, but what exactly is being expressed when we read that, the kingdom of God? Because here's the thing, the scriptures command us, as we will see, that we are to seek that kingdom. And I think that in, if we are going to be obedient to that command to seek the kingdom of God, then we probably are going to need to understand what it is that we are to seek after. And so if we do not understand that, then it would or could be concluded that then we probably can't effectively pursue that very thing that we have no clue what we're pursuing. So our understanding of this ideal would determine our passion with which we pursue it. So what I mean is that the extent to which you understand what is meant biblically by this phrase, the kingdom of God, 
will bear itself out in the passion with which you pursue it. So if you don't understand it, if you don't if you don't understand this reality at all, then the likelihood is the way that that's going to be revealed in your life is that there's probably not much pursuit after it. But if you are, are, are growing in your comprehension of what this reality means when we talk about the kingdom of God, then the likelihood is that your passion in your life as you're living this reality out is going to be growing as well. And that passion is going to become more and more evident in your life. Regardless of how long you've been a believer, but it's going to be increasing if we are growing in our understanding. So if we want to grow in our passion to live for God's glory, then then grow in pursuing understanding of not only this phrase, but God's word in general, which will bring understanding to this this ideal that we want to discuss over these several weeks. But but also know that if you don't want to be driven to live for God's glory, then my recommendation to you would be to ignore his word. Now, I know you don't hear many preachers encourage anybody or recommend that you ignore his word, but understand that that if you don't want to grow in passion for living for God's glory, then, then stay out of his word. Because here's the reality. If you are in his word, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow you. you. Your passion is going to begin to ignite if you are in his word. Uh, and so when we're not very passionate or desirous of God and his ways, which, again, we could phrase the kingdom of God, then it's likely because we're not very enthralled with the very message that he has given us, God's communication to you and I. So our text today is a starting place. Uh, I'm simply, I'm going to read a simple verse. You probably already found that in your Bible. I hope you have. And, and probably you can read it in about three seconds. But here's what Matthew says. He records the words of Jesus in Matthew 6.33. He says, but seek first... The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask this morning as we consider this this brief text along with really a whole lot of other texts that we call the Bible. I pray that you will give us understanding. And I pray that, that our increasing understanding... Lord, would reveal itself in our hearts to ourselves as we recognize changes and then to the world around us as our passion and our desire for you and your word grows. I pray that you would create in us an appetite and a desire for you and the message that you have communicated to us in the pages of Scripture and that because we we want to devour this word that it will ignite massive passion in our lives so much that the world around us might might even believe that we're a little bit beside ourselves because that's how they felt about Jesus. So, Father, help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist for us to to begin to break that verse apart, does it? 
I mean, probably most, most of you could probably come up here and do a very good jo- job at it because, I mean, it's straightforward, right? Number one, it's a command, just in case you weren't sure. It is a command. It's imperative, meaning that Jesus was offering a suggestion. Hey, I, I think it might be a good idea if you maybe consider this. Uh, but rather, Jesus was saying to his followers, those who would, who would dare follow this radical person named Jesus, he was saying to them, seek first the kingdom. And his righteousness. So it's a command. Pretty clear. We're to pursue something, right? It's seek. That's the command. And that something is given to us in, in twofold explanation, which we're not going to completely discuss today. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, it's upon that first phrase. I'll, I'll address that last part in our conclusion briefly this morning. But that first part, the kingdom of God. I mean, again, we know it well. But we need to know it as God intends for us to picture and understand when we hear those words, what exactly are we supposed to be thinking upon? Now, before we really get to some of that and understand that today is an introduction, this is what's going to be happening over the next nine weeks. Now, I would encourage you um, uh, not to miss. I, I would say that any day, but even more so as we walk through this, because it is a progressive kind of thing. And so if you miss something, you're going to miss something. And uh, But the, the, the nice thing, though I don't want to make an excuse for you, is that they are made available online if you do miss. Uh, that's secondary. <laughs> we want you here, because uh, it's not the same, I, w- I would add, to just listen to it online as, as it is to hear it uh, now together as, as God's people gather. So I would encourage you uh, to try to, to, to stay, stick with us through this series, because there will be holes in it if you miss as we walk through this. But in order for us to even begin down that road, we need to uh, talk about this command. Seek first the kingdom of God. And, uh, and to understand what Jesus is trying to get across, we need to look briefly, not in a, in, in a great detail, but at the context, t- context in which Jesus gives us this. Now, how many of you know uh, 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 the, this, is a, this is a Bible drill? All right, this is uh, key passages. What key passage is this chapter found in? Thank you. Miss Paula, you get the prize. I don't have the prize for you. But the Sermon on the, the Mount. Uh, so which then, of course, I can say, well, what's, what's that all about? Now, we won't go there because some of you probably just go, you know, kind of like that. Uh, that'll come across real good on the recording. Um, but... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so, yeah, we need to understand that there's a context there. And, and, and again, we're not going to break that all down. This is really just by way of introdu- introducing the series. Uh, but the Sermon on the Mount was a message, at least where it's given to us as the words of Jesus, to those who would dare follow him. And, and this message, the Sermon on the Mount, it was countercultural. It was radical. I mean, everything that, that they knew within their culture, Jesus was challenging it in, from a from an uh, economical way, from a religious perspective, in every way. And basically what that Sermon on the Mount was teaching them, while they didn't comprehend much of it at all in the moment, uh, not even his own immediate disciples of the Twelve comprehended it. But the point was that life with me, Jesus, changes everything. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different. And the world is not going to understand it. It's going to be radically different. And so that's really the context of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in the midst of that, in chapter 6 itself, 
from which we get this command, Jesus helps us to see in some particular ways how different that's supposed to be. And so this is the context I want to set forth for us. And really, chapter 6, we could, we could categorize it in three major categories. And uh, those categories are this, the pursuit of prominence, the pursuit of prosperity, and the pursuit of provision. Now, Jesus is going to use these three ideas, not because they're all that he could use to illustrate, but because they, they, would, they would hit them at the very center of their lives in their culture. Uh, because he was focusing in on mainly the religious, because who is he talking to initially? Well, the Jews, who were a very religious people. I mean, after all, they were God's people, as they were told. And so they were supposed to live a certain way. And so Jesus begins to challenge what they understood to be the way that they were supposed to be living. So in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, he begins to address the issues of prominence. And he does so with three major religious activities of their day. That would be giving, praying, and fasting. Something they would all been very familiar with. Because these were things that they had to do if they were going to be seen as God's people, God followers, or in any sense of the word. So Jesus uses those to, to kind of chop down their view of the world around them. He changed their worldview. And so he basically says, don't be like the hypocrites. And the hypocrites he was referencing were the religious people, right? And he says this concerning giving, praying, and fasting. Now we can say a whole lot more about these things, but... What, what the focus is, is he, he calls them hypocrites and says, don't be like them. So be different. And, and he kind of talks about what they do. He says, basically, that they do it for a reward. And they have their reward. And their reward is the audience of man. They have it now. So there is a reward to it to gain prominence in this life. But that's all there is. And Jesus says that about this, this concept of uh, uh, first giving and then praying, and then fasting. And so the bottom line is, don't be like them. Don't pursue prominence in this life, because the kingdom of God is different. And then he focuses on uh, the pursuit of prosperity, beginning in verse 19. And he starts with one of those very familiar verses that most of us know. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves upon the earth, where wrath and wrath, moth and rust will will break in and, and, and corrupt and, and thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Why? And he tells us, very simple, because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Now listen, that's countercultural, because what does our culture say? When you're living life, follow your heart. So your heart is ultimate. You follow your heart. Jesus says no. Your treasure is ultimate and your heart will follow that. So get your treasure right and your heart will fall in place. And we know that to be true in our lives. We, we try to pretend all the time about our, our worldly desires. We try to pretend they're really not there. But we understand it. Where our treasure, that which we treasure, that's what we invest in. That's what we throw money at. That's what we throw time at. That's where our hearts are. And Jesus was saying, don't pursue prosperity in this life. He doesn't say being prosperous is wrong. He says, do not make it your treasure. Again, countercultural, probably more so in the 21st century than it was in the first. And then thirdly, he addresses the issue of provision. Well, you might sit here and kind of go, well, 
I'm not a public person. I don't care that much about attention, so I'm not pursuing prominence. You might go, well, I don't have any money, so I don't have to worry. He's not talking to me. Uh, I'm not pursuing prosperity. Well, we'll hit you right here. Because the next thing, last, next thing Jesus says is don't pursue provision. What? Well, and then we get that whole passage, which you've read, I hope. If not, read it again, beginning in uh, verse 25. He says, don't be anxious about your life, about what you shall eat, what you shall drink, or what you shall put on. Basic necessities of life. Providing for your family, for yourself. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, you know, hey, don't look for prominence. Don't look for prosperity. But, hey, it's normal and it's, it's right that you should... Take care of yourself. That's what we would expect him to say, but that's not what he says. He says, don't be anxious about it. Why? Because your anxiety about it, it's going to change one iota about your life. It's not going to add one day to your life. It's not going to do anything in respects to what really matters. In fact, he says at the end of this passage, he says, your father in heaven knows your need. And he says, The pagans, those who don't believe, they pursue after these things, but we're different. And then he says, so therefore, seek first, in reference to all these things, prominence, prosperity, with all the justifying we might be able to do in the midst of those, and how we might, if we can be prominent, we could influence in a good way. We could come up with some good excuses, but don't pursue those. Seek first the kingdom of God And his righteousness. And then he says, and all these things will be added. These are not the pursuit. These are the fruit. Right? Do you get that? We struggle with this. And I understand the struggle. I get that. That this is a natural struggle because we are living between two worlds. I don't know if you get that. If you are a follower of Christ, you are living between two worlds. Yes, you still live in the present kingdom of this world. That's real. You know it. When you check your mailbox and the bills are there, you remember you live in the kingdom of this world. When you get the phone call in the middle of the night that your loved one has has tragically been taken from you, you remember that you live in the midst of the kingdom of this world. But that's not all you live in. If you are a follower of this radical man named Jesus, then you have a stake in another world. And it's just as real. While you may be grappling with that, it is real. The kingdom of this world gives way to the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand. Because understanding that makes a difference in how we live in this present world until the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. And the kingdom of this world passes away and is no more. So, I want us to begin to grow in our understanding of what the kingdom of God really means. Because I think there's a lot in it for us on a very fundamental level, on a very practical level. I'm not the best preacher when it comes to, you know, step one, step two, practical application. I think I do application. But here, the application begins with understanding. Knowing something to be true and to be real, that's where the application begins. Without that, 
our application is somewhat just kind of, I don't know the right word for it. It's just, we just kind of throw it at it, to, throwing something at it to make us feel like we're doing something. And, and I want to do more than that. So let me finish today in this so-called introduction to this series with some, probably some fundamental things uh, about how we come to understand this reality that Jesus commands us to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, because the reality is, uh, when it comes down to it, most of us are struggling with a lot of living out the Christian life because we, we just, for whatever reason, you know, and, I, and, and this would be a good time for me to do good Bible bashing, but that wouldn't do any good. That's not my point. But that because we neglect this, and we do not read this, you, and you know I'm talking, you know who I'm talking to. We, we just, we don't spend any time in this. And, and, and the struggle for you in, 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 in bringing together these two worlds in which you live and trying to make sense out of it will absolutely always be there and probably increase in struggle so long as this is neglected because this is the very thing that helps us to know how we're supposed to live between two worlds until all things are accomplished. And there's a great deal of help here. And again, it begins with us understanding what it is that we're supposed to be doing. And it's more than just showing up for church on Sunday and singing songs together and, and, and praying together and, and sitting here listening to messages. Those are great things, so long as they are the overflow of our pursuit of the kingdom. If they are the overflow of our just doing habitual acts, then they are as meaningless as if you sit at home. I know that's dangerous for me to say. I'm not saying don't come. I want you here. But I, I, I can't pretend to think that you sitting under the sound of my preaching is going to do a whole lot to convince you of anything if, if you never crack open the word of God and pursue what God wants for you. So here's, here's some misconceptions that I want you to know. And some of these you've heard and you know. I'm going to repeat them for you. This is one book. It's one book. Now, I know we talk about it in, in the sense of many books in the Bible, you know, turn to the book of Matthew. And so we get the idea that this is made up of, in fact, 66 books that have just been kind of compressed together. And, and that is true so much in the fact that often they're written by varying authors. In fact, the Bible was written by about 40 different authors over a span somewhere between about 2,000 years. But it has one divine author, and the, the product is one book. Now, you say, well, duh, I've been in church before. Maybe you didn't know that, and so now you do. It's very, it's, it's, that's the fundamental, but I raise it because we approach this book as though it's 66 different books with different themes and different ideas. But it's not. It's a single book with parts that are necessary to make up the whole. Because it's one story made up by multiple stories that convey one grand narrative, one great story. And here's the thing. How many of you read, for pleasure, fiction stuff? How many of you read? I don't have a book to do this with, but I mean, if, if, if I said, man, here is a great book for you, but I only have one copy and, and 
Skip and Diana, I want both of you to read it. I don't want you to miss it. So I rip it in half and I give you both half. And so Diana's going to start reading at the beginning and she's going to, it's a murder mystery. And she's going to read, she's going to find out that, you know, well, well, first of all, Skip's going to read last half. He's going to know that the butler did it with the candlestick. But he ain't going to know what the butler did. Skip's going to, I mean, Diana's going to find out that there's something that happened. Somebody died, but she's not going to know anything else about it. Well, I know that's silly, but that's the way we read the Bible. We, we rip it in two, and then we, we read bits and pieces here and there, and you wonder why we have confusion. And the reality is it is one story. And so when we read the Bible from the beginning, like we would read any other book, it begins to tell a story utilizing many working parts that, that contribute to that story. And so as we move through the text of the Old Testament, this story becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. It's kind of like sitting there watching an artist paint a masterpiece. I mean, and sometimes when you do that, it doesn't look like anything until that very last point. And they add certain details and you go, wow. I've seen a couple. I wish I'd have brought this just to show you. But I've seen a couple of these examples. I saw this on one of these talk shows. This speed painter. And he gets up there and he paints in like a minute. And, and he's supposed to be impressive. And when the time's up, they're all looking at him like, well, I could have done that. Look, like I just threw paint and rubbed it all around. And he flipped it over and it was a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. And it was all about the perspective. It didn't look like anything. Well, the Bible, not that it's a trick to it, but as we read it, that picture becomes clearer and clearer. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, it's like flipping that portrait and suddenly you go, ha, there it is. It makes sense. I get it. But we either want to start in the middle and move forward or kind of jump around here and there and read these stories. We want to rip stories out of these story and try to make something of them in themselves without understanding how they fit into the broader perspective. And so my argument this morning is that if we would seek to understand this, this, this singular story that is about, and here's the theme I'm running with, the kingdom of God from the very beginning to the very end, if we will work through that, I think there's clarity there. I don't think you have to be a seminary graduate. I don't think you, you have to read 24 hours a day, but you do have to read. You do have to read and think and struggle a little bit and, and read some stuff that makes no sense to you and you, you keep going and, keep, and pray that God will bring some clarity to it and study and, and contemplate. This is my, my hope for you and this is what I want to help you see over the course of the next several weeks. I, I, I'm not going to pretend to think that I can transform your understanding in merely nine weeks, but I'd like to see something happen. And so here's where I'll finish today because I want you to understand. I'm going to give you a definition, by the way. I keep talking about what does that mean, so I've got to give you a definition, right? Now, I stole this one. I, I have nothing original, by the way. Understand that. Okay, um, and, and so if you really want some further stuff in the midst of this series, there's a couple books you could go read. Uh, one of them's uh, uh, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts, and the other one is uh, The Gospel in the Kingdom by Graham Goldsworthy. Uh, both books are, are very helpful. Uh, you know, and these are the kind of books you might not agree with everything in them, and that's fine. But the big picture of it is very, very helpful, and so you can can look at those. And so I've stolen their definition because I think it's great. And it's been very helpful for me. And here's the definition of the kingdom of God. Now, are you ready to write it down? Or to write it in your, in your minds for those of you who are smarter than the rest of us and can remember it all? 
All right, because it's really big. It's really hard. It's really, you know, theological. God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and blessing. See how hard that one is? God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and blessing. Now, we're going to take that definition and I want to show you over the next eight weeks after this one how that the Bible unpacks those realities at every point along the way. God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and blessing. And it will help you, I pray, I believe, to then be able to read some of the texts of the Bible and understand where it fits into the bigger story as we walk through this. So when you read a story, even a familiar story, and I've used this one before. It's one reason why I, I love the Gospel Project material because it helps you to do what I'm doing right now through this series. It just takes a lot longer because theirs is three years. Mine's going to be nine weeks. So, but the story that I use in an example for the Gospel Project folks was this. How many of you know the story of David and Goliath? You know the story, right? You've heard it. It's a kid's story. I always want to tell people, no, it's not a children's story. We love to tell them children, but they're for you, okay? They're not children's stories. But David and Goliath, we, we always get this story. It's a great story, and we take it out of that, 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 car, that place it fits in the Bible, and we deal with just that story, and we... We take the application of it and we say things like, you know, here's how you conquer your giants and those things. But now if we put the story back where it belongs, in the context of the scripture, in the, as a part of the whole, here's what we begin to realize. David was not ever meant for us to identify with him. You know, we're not trying to figure out how to be a David. Now, not to say there's not characteristics there that we would desire to emulate, but that's not the point of the story. Because you know how the story goes. This, this little would-be king, he'd been anointed, but he's not yet king. But he's been anointed. And he doesn't look like much, but he goes down the road to see, check out the battle, right? And he gets there, and the Israelites are up on the hill with their knees knocking. And David hears that giant down in the, in, in the valley going, Who will come out against me? You know, I defy the living God. I don't, I don't know it by heart, but... You know, so he's, he's saying these things. David says, what's going on? Why are y'all standing here? Did you hear what he said? And nobody will go. And so little nobody David. Nobody would think anything of David. And, and, and in order for the story, and here's the, here's the beauty of God using life to communicate the gospel to us. In order to make this story even more just pressed in, we get the part about putting the armor on. Right? Just if we didn't get that David wasn't much of anything, he couldn't even fill out the armor. And so he goes down in the valley with nothing, with very little, picks up some stones, and he defeats this great giant. Now, yeah, I would love to be like David. I'm not. I am not that brave or stupid. I don't know. I know I didn't just call David stupid. I. Somebody will take that out of the clip and be like, this preacher says David's an idiot. You know. um, but here's the real picture that that story teaches us about. David, the anointed king, goes to a battlefield and he fights 
a battle on behalf of God's people that they are unable and unwilling to fight and win on their own. And he goes down into the valley and he faces this great enemy and he walks away with victory for all of God's people. And while he goes down there, they stand up on the hill with their knees knocking, unwilling and unable to do what this little runt anointed king's doing for them. And we realize in that story, we are not the David. We are the army on the hill with our knees knocking, unable to fight, unwilling to fight the battle that must be fought and won. And David, the anointed king, is none other than the anointed king who would one day come and on behalf of all of fallen humanity fight the battle on their behalf that we are unable and unwilling to fight ourselves And so in this story is the story of the gospel without the gospel ever being mentioned. And we need to see how scripture magnifies the gospel all the way through. So a couple final things and and just we'll come back to that magnification of the gospel. Here's the outline we're going to follow for the next eight weeks. First, we're going to look at the kingdom of God created. Genesis 1 and 2. Then we're going to look at the kingdom of God decimated. I'm making these sound good, by the way. That's Genesis 3 through 11. Number three, the kingdom of God communicated. That is to human people. That is Genesis 12 through Deuteronomy. Number four, the kingdom of God illustrated. That's going to be Joshua all the way through 2 Chronicles. Number five, the kingdom of God anticipated. That's going to be the story of the prophets as they prophesied of what was to come. Number six, the kingdom of God inaugurated. And that is what happened when Jesus came. That's the Gospels. The kingdom of God cultivated, Acts through Jude. That's the life of the church. That's us here and now in this present reality. And then finally, number eight, the kingdom of God consummated. And that will be where God fully and finally brings to bear upon the kingdom of this world his glorious kingdom. And it shall overcome. So if the Bible is in fact just one big story of this thing we call the gospel, then how marvelous, marvelous it would be as we read through the text and you read some of those obscure things. And, and I haven't decided on all the texts that I will use for these messages yet, but uh, one of the texts I, would, I may consider to use is the, the, the story out of the, out of the law over the, over the cities of refuge because the gospel is fully there in that story. It's in all the stories. But why? Why would this story be so important? Well, we come back to Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God, and he adds to that, uh, and his righteousness. And you, you have to stop and say, well, what exactly does that mean? How do we seek God's righteousness? Well, the people that Jesus was speaking to, they, he just talked about how they were seeking it. How did they do it? They, they did it by giving, giving, and giving. They did it by praying and praying. And by the way, what did Jesus say in that portion when he said, uh, uh, here's how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What? Your kingdom come. That's what the prayer is about. It's about God's kingdom coming. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you're not going to get there through the giving. You're not going to get there through the praying. You're not going to get there through the fasting. You said, well, what, what? Because that's what they were depending on to get, become righteous. But if we, to get help from this, we need to go to Romans 1. 
Because Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, verse 17, what's it? The gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So, if Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, which is the story that he has given us from beginning to end, that tells forth the gospel message from beginning to end, didn't just start, you know, in Matthew. And then he says, and seek this kingdom and God's righteousness. And it just so happens that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Then doesn't it make sense? That this story of the kingdom of God that unveils to us it progressively this beautiful story that we call the gospel is the means by which we can see and understand the righteousness of God. And this is what God has told us to pursue. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. So it's my prayer over the next several weeks that I can whet your appetite. W-H-E-T. I'm not going to pour water on you. But whet your appetite concerning this kingdom. It's, it's a beautiful story from beginning to end. And next week we'll, we'll, we'll launch into that. But for the meantime, here's where we end today. Because while this is an immense book, that is, that is, it is hard to digest. I'm not trying to make it uh, uh, simplistic. It takes a lot of time. It's going to take more than a lifetime. But it's worth the process. But while that's the case, the gospel itself is not, doesn't require that one understand or memorize Genesis to Revelation before there's understanding. Because understanding comes by the word of God, the truth, but it also comes by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see the wonder of this story of the gospel. And so, it's my prayer for you today that if you are a believer, if you've embraced the gospel, I mean, really embrace the gospel, that it matters to you, that it, it affects your life, that it changes things. Because understand that if you embrace it, that comes into play. Then, then my prayer is that, that wherever you are in that walk, that God will just, I don't know, slap you upside the back of the head and remind you how, don't misunderstand me, how stupid you are. And I say that because of my own experience. How when I thought that I knew it all and God kind of slapped me upside the head and said, ha, hold on, brother. And I went back to seminary and I realized every day I got, I got dumber. I got dumber every day in seminary. And I'm still getting dumber, by the way. The more I'm in God's word, the more I, I realize there is to learn and it's worth it. And that's what I, I, I pray is going to happen, is happening with you right now. If you're here today and, and this stuff makes absolutely no sense... Because you, you don't know Christ. You, you've never embraced the gospel. You've never considered this. You've never contemplated it. And it's my prayer that, that, that God would, would grip your heart. And that there would be, be a supernatural desire created within you that God can only do. A, desiring to know what this gospel is all about. And let me tell you, if that happens, I would love to tell you about it. Absolutely. And so I invite you to... To come see me in a moment or any other time and let me try to be a means by which God can open your eyes to the majesty of the gospel. That's my prayer for us this morning as we stand. Now it's your turn to begin to contemplate, if you haven't already, how is it 
are you going to respond to a message like this? A little odd because of the introductory nature, but nevertheless with a whole a great detail of ways in which you and I uh, need to respond or could respond. So stand with me and we'll pray and then we'll sing. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the word. What a marvelous word. I, I pray that you would use it in our hearts today to change us. Lord, sometimes we, we make things, I think, more difficult or maybe even more weird than they really are when it comes to this thing we call religion. And Lord, I just, I recognize this morning that if anything's going to happen amongst, in my heart or in the, uh, in the hearts of these people, that it's, it's only going to happen because you supernaturally do something beyond our ability. And so we ask for that today that you would open our eyes to unseen things, that you would open our, our ears to hear, not the sounds around us, but the voice of our Creator, that you would give us minds that, that can comprehend that which goes beyond the natural. And Lord, give us hearts that gladly embrace all that reality. Change our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.